The following introduction is taken from Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, Chapter 4. About the close of the century, the Reverend Timothy Rogers, a pious and able minister of London, fell into a state of deep melancholy. And such was the distressing darkness of his mind that he gave up all hope of the mercy of God and believed himself to be a vessel of wrath designed for destruction for the praise of the glorious justice of the Almighty. His sad condition was known to many pious ministers and people throughout the country who, it is believed, were earnest and incessant in their supplications in his behalf. And these intercessions were not ineffectual, for it pleased God to grant a complete deliverance to his suffering servant. And having received comfort of the Lord, he was exceedingly desirous to be instrumental in administering the same comfort to others with which he himself had been comforted. He therefore wrote several treatises with this object in view, which are well calculated to be of service to those laboring under spiritual distress. One of these is entitled, Recovery from Sickness. Another, Consolation to the Afflicted. And a third, A Discourse on Trouble of Mind and the Disease of Melancholy. In a preface to this last-name work, the author gives direction to the friends of persons laboring under religious melancholy, how to treat them. The substance of these I will now communicate to the reader. Number one, look upon your distress, friends, as under one of the worst distempers to which this miserable life is liable to. Melancholy incapacitates them for thought or action. It confounds and disturbs all their thoughts and fills them with vexation and anguish. I verily believe that when this malign humor is deeply fixed and has spread its deleterious influence over every part, it is as vain to attempt to resist it by reasoning and rational motives as to oppose a fever or the gout or pleurisy. One of the very worst attendants of this disease is a lack of sleep by which in other distresses men are relieved and refreshed. But in this disease, their sleep flies far away, or is so disturbed that the poor sufferer, instead of being refreshed, it's like one on the rack. The faculties of the soul are weakened, and all their operations disturbed and clouded, and the poor body languishes and pines away at the same time. And that which renders this disease more formidable is its long continuance. It is a long time often before it comes to its height, and usually is tedious in its declension. It is, in every respect, sad and overwhelming. State of darkness, it has no discernible beams of light. It generally begins in the body, and then conveys its venom to the mind. I don't pretend to tell you what medicines will cure it for I know of none. I leave you to advise with such as are skilled in medicine, and especially to such doctors as have experienced something of it themselves, for it is impossible to understand the nature of it in any other way than by experience. There's danger, Richard Greenham writes, that the bodily physician will look no further than the body, while the spiritual physician will totally disregard the body and looked only at the mind. Number two, treat those who are under this disease with tender compassion. Remember, you also are liable to the same affliction. 
For however brisk your spirits and lively your feelings now are, you may meet with such reverses, with such long and sharp afflictions as will sink your spirits, many not naturally inclined to melancholy. Have I overwhelming and repeated calamities been sunk into this dark gulf? Number three. Never use harsh language to your friends when under the disease of melancholy. They will only serve to fret and perplex them the more, but will never benefit them. I know that the counsel of some is to rebuke and chide them on all occasions, but I dare confidently say that such advisers never fell to disease themselves. For if they had, they would know that thus they do but pour oil into the flames, and chafe and exasperate their wounds instead of healing them. John Dodd, by reason of his mild, meek, and merciful spirit, was reckoned one of the fittest persons to deal with those thus afflicted. Never was any person more tender and compassionate. It's all will be convinced. Who will read the accounts of Mr. Peacock and Sarah Drake, both of whom were greatly relieved by his conversation. This is a footnote. That story and history can be found in a book called Trodden Down Strength by the God of Strength. But I continue, number four. If you would possess any influence over your friends in this unhappy state of mind, you must be careful not to express any lack of confidence in what they relate of their own feelings and distresses. On this point, there is often a great mistake. When they speak of their frightful and distressing apprehensions, it is common for friends to reply, This is all imaginary. Nothing but fancy. An unfounded whim. Now, the disease is a real one, and their misery is as real as any experienced by man. It is true their imagination is disordered, but this is merely the effect of a deeper disease. These afflicted persons never can believe that you have any real sympathy with their misery or feel any compassion for them unless you believe what they say. Number five, do not urge your melancholy friends to do what is out of their power. They are like persons whose bones are broken and who are incapacitated for action. Their disease is accompanied with perplexing and tormenting thoughts. If you can innocently divert them. You would do them a great kindness, but do not urge them to anything which requires close and intent thinking. This will only increase a disease. But, you will ask, ought we not to urge them to hear the word of God? I answer, if they are so far gone in the disease as to be in continual unremitting anguish, they are not capable of hearing on account of the painful disorder of their minds. But, if the disorder has not come to such a distressing height, you may kindly and gently persuade them to attend on the preaching of the word. But beware of using a peremptory and violent method. The method pursued by John Dodd with Sarah Drake should be imitated. Quote, The burden which overloaded her soul was so great that we never dared add anything to it but fed her with all encouragements. She being too apt to overcharge herself and its spare upon any addition of fuel to that fire which was inwardly consuming her. And so, whenever she went to hear, notice was given to the minister officiating that he had such a hear, 
and by this means you receive no discouragement from hearing, end quote. Number six, do not attribute defects, a mere disease to the devil. Although I do not deny that he has an agency in producing some diseases, especially by harassing and disturbing the mind to such a degree that the body suffers with it, but it is very unwise to ascribe every feeling and every word of the melancholy man to Satan, whereas many of these are as natural consequences of bodily disease as the symptoms of a fever, which the poor sufferer can no more avoid than a sick man can keep himself from sighing and groaning. Many will say to such a one, Why do you so pour over your case and thus gratify the devil? whereas it is the very nature of the disease to cause such fixed musings. You might as well say to a man in a fever, Why aren't you well? Why will you be sick? Some indeed suppose that the melancholy hugged their disease, and are unwilling to give it up. But you might as well suppose that a man would be pleased with lying on a bed of thorns, or in a fiery furnace. No doubt the devil knows how to work on minds thus diseased, and that by shooting his fiery darts he endeavors to drive them to utter despair. But if you persuade them that all which they experience is from the devil, you may induce the opinion in them that they are actually possessed of the evil one, which has been the unhappy condition of some whose minds were disordered. I would not have you bring a railing accusation even against the devil, neither must you falsely accuse your friends by saying that they gratify him. 7. Do not express much surprise or wonder at anything which melancholy persons say or do. What will they not say who are in despair of God's mercy? What will they not do who think themselves lost forever? You know that even such a man as Job cursed his day, so that the Lord charged him with darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Do not wonder that they give expression to bitter complaints. The tongue will always be speaking of the aching tooth. Their soul is sore vexed, and although they get no good by complaining, yet they cannot but complain to find themselves in such a doleful case. And they can say with David, I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Yet they cannot forbear to groan and weep more until their very eyes are consumed with grief. Let no sharp words of theirs provoke you to talk sharply to them. Sick people are apt to be peevish, and it would be a great weakness in you not to bear with them when you see that a long and sore disease has deprived them of their former good temper. 8. Do not tell them any frightful stories, nor recount to them the sad disasters which have overtaken others. Their hearts always meditate terror, and by every alarming thing of which they hear, they are the more terrified, and their disordered imagination is prepared to seize upon every frightful image which is presented. To hearing of sad things always causes them more violent agitations, yet you must avoid merriment and levity in their presence, for this would lead them to think that you have no sympathy with them. No concern for them. A mixture of gravity and affableness will best suit them. And if I might advise, I would counsel parents not to put their children who are naturally inclined to melancholy, to learning, 
or to any employment which requires much study, lest they should at length be preyed upon by their own thoughts. 9. Do not, however, think it needless to talk with them, but do not speak as if you thought their disease would be of long continuance, for this is a prospect which appears most gloomy to the melancholy. Rather encourage them to hope for speedy deliverance, Endeavor to revive their spirits by declaring that God can give them relief in a moment, and that he has often done so with others, that he can quickly heal their disease and cause his amiable and reconciled face to shine upon them. Number 10. It will be useful to tell them of others who have been in the same state of suffering, and yet have been delivered. It is indeed true that they who are depressed by such a load of grief are with difficulty persuaded that any were in ever such a condition as they are. They think themselves to be more wicked than Cain or Judas, and view their own case to be entirely singular. It will therefore be important to relate real cases of deliverance from similar distress and darkness. Several such cases have been known to me. Is that a Mr. Roswell? and also Mr. Porter, both ministers of the gospel. The latter was six years under the pressure of melancholy, yet both these experienced complete deliverance, and afterwards rejoice in the light of God's countenance. I myself was near two years in great pain of body and greater pain of soul, and without any prospect of peace or help, and yet God has recovered me by his sovereign grace and mercy. Mr. Robert Bruce, minister in Edinburgh, with twenty years in terrors of conscience, and yet delivered afterward. And so, of many others who after a dark, stormy night were blessed with the cheerful light of the returning day, John Fox, in his Book of Martyrs, gives an account of a certain Mr. Glover, who was worn and consumed with inward trouble for five years, so that he had no comfort in his food, nor in his sleep, nor in any enjoyment of life, he was as perplexed as if he had been in the deepest pit of hell, and yet this good servant of God, after all these horrid temptations and buffetings of Satan, was delivered from all his trouble, and the effect was such a degree of mortification of sin that he appeared as one already in heaven. 11. The next thing which you are to do for your melancholy friends is to pray for them as they have not light and composure to pray for themselves. Let your eyes weep for them in secret, and there let your souls melt in fervent holy prayers. You know that none but God alone can help them. Mr. Peacock said to Mr. Dodd and his other friends, Take not the name of God in vain by praying for such a reprobate. John Dodd replied, If God stir up your friends to pray for you, he will stir up himself to hear their prayers. You ought to consider that nothing but prayer can do them any good. It is an obstinate disease that nothing else will overcome. Those who can cure themselves by resorting to wine and company were never under this disease. Number 12. Not only pray for them yourself, but engage other Christian friends also to pray for them. When many good people join their request together, their cry is more acceptable and prevalent. When the church united in prayer for Peter and James, he was soon delivered, and in the very time of their prayers. All believers have, through Christ, a great interest in heaven, 
and the Father is willing to grant what they unitedly and importunately ask in the name of his dear Son. I myself have been greatly held by the prayers of others, and I heartily thank all those especially who set apart particular days to remember at a throne of grace my distressed condition. Blessed be God that he did not turn away his mercy from me, nor turn a deaf ear to their supplications. Number 13. Put your poor afflicted friends in mind continually of the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. Often impress on their minds that he is merciful and gracious, did as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far his thoughts above their thoughts, his thoughts of mercy, above their self-condemning guilty thoughts. Teach them as much as you can to look to God by the great mediator for grace and strength, and not too much to pour over their own souls, where there is so much darkness and unbelief, and turn away their thoughts from the secret eternal decrees of God. Show them what great sinners God has pardoned. Encourage them to believe in the whole for mercy. When Sarah Drake was in her deplorable state of darkness, she would send a description of her case to distinguished ministers, concealing her name, to know whether such a creature without faith, hope, or love to God or man, hard-hearted, without natural affection, who had resisted and abused all means, could have any hope of going to heaven. Her answer was, that such like and much worse might, by the mercy of God, be received in a favor converted and saved, which did much allay her trouble. For, she said, the fountain of all my misery has been that I sought that in the moral law, which I should have found in the gospel, and for that in myself, which was only to be found in Christ. From my own experience I can testify, says John Rogers, to the mild and gentle way of dealing with such is the best. End quote. Footnote. The pastor who was most used in the case of Sarah Drake was Thomas Hooker. The book he wrote after that is called Poor Doubting Christian Drawn to Christ. Quoting again Archibald Alexander, a volume might be written on the subject of religious melancholy, and such a volume is much needed, but it would be difficult to find a person qualified for the undertaking. We have some books written by pious casuists, and the subject is handled in medical treatises on insanity. But, to do it justice, physiological knowledge must be combined with an accurate acquaintance with the experience of Christians. Richard Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is one of the strangest books I have ever read. For curious learning and classical quotations, it cannot be surpassed, and there is much originality of remark and frequent strokes of wit in the work but very little valuable information on the subject of which it treats. The author seems to have been himself troubled with fits of melancholy, and enjoying much learned leisure, amused his melancholy hours by searching after and heaping up much learning out of the common track. The spiritual physician who has the cure of diseased souls takes much less pains to inquire minutely and exactly into the maladies of his patients than is observable in the physicians of the body. I have often admired the alacrity and perseverance with which medical students attend upon anatomical and physiological lectures, although often the exhibitions are extremely repulsive to our natural feelings, the patience and ingenuity with which the men of this profession make experience, are highly worthy of imitation. 
Many of our young preachers, when they go forth on their important errand, are poorly qualified to direct a doubting conscience, or to administer safe consolation to those troubled in spirit. And in modern preaching, there is little account made of the various distressing cases of deep affliction, under which many serious persons are suffering. If we want counsel on subjects of this kind, we must go back to the old writers. But is there now small demand for such works? They are fast sinking into oblivion, and their place is not likely to be supplied by any works which a prolific press now pours forth. It is, however, a pleasing circumstance that the writings of so many of our old Puritan divines have recently been reprinted in London, but still many valuable treatises are destined to oblivion.